we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It may have been a few years, perhaps even a few decades for many of us, but I'm sure we can all recall the ritual of picking sides to play games. Dodgeball during recess, or pick up basketball in the park, or softball at the empty lot down the street. Captains are chosen either by common consent or by ownership of the required equipment, and the rest of the interested players line up. What happens next is one of the most ego-boosting or ego-deflating experiences of our childhood. The strongest, the fastest, the best athletes generally get selected first, unless questions of popularity or allegiance shuffle the order. But the last will be last. And that sometimes was made even more painful as the captains bartered to avoid the least likely to get a hit or the most likely to make an error. Our text this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 7 speaks of God's choice, not his choice of point guards or softball players, but his choice of nations. Moses declares to Israel on the other side of the Jordan, the Lord your God has chosen you. God does not necessarily pick the strongest or the fastest. His standards are different because his purposes are different. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, Moses records. So why did God choose Israel? Or perhaps better yet, for what did God choose Israel? To answer that question, we should first consider the context of these four verses of pure gospel. The majority of Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon. It opens with, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf. The first six chapters recount the mighty deeds of Yahweh bringing them out of Egypt, recounts Israel's rebellion and their wilderness wanderings. They include the recapitulation of the law and the great Shema, Israel's creedal statement and rallying cry, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And chapter 7 begins with instructions and exhortations regarding the conquest of the promised land. It contains strange and violent language that caused many Christian concern. The seven nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites are all to be utterly destroyed. Moses also speaks a harsh warning against intermarriage with these nations, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And finally, there is the explicit command to purge the land of false worship. Why? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. For this reason, to be a holy nation, God chose your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This election was without any merit or worthiness on their part. There is no mention of Abram's good character back in Genesis chapter 12. Abram himself was not above deceit, faithlessly taking matters into his own hands. You might recall his conspiracy with Sarai in Egypt, 
or their plan for him to have a son by the servant Hagar. Isaac himself needed to be tricked to do God's will, and Jacob all but stole the birthright to say nothing of his father-in-law Laban's hers. But God freely chose these, your fathers, to fulfill his earlier promise to Eve and to all humanity in Genesis chapter 3. The promise to crush the power of the serpent, the power of Satan, through Abram, that promise would be fulfilled and the nations would be blessed, blessed in Jesus Christ. God accomplished this through his covenant, the covenant recorded in Genesis chapter 15. And this, this was a unilateral covenant. Abram slept while God promised, while God sealed the covenant by passing through the split carcasses of animals. Because of that covenant, the oath that he swore to your fathers, God has brought you up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Like their fathers, Israel also was without any merit or worthiness. The text describes them as the fewest of all peoples and during the wilderness experience as a stiff-necked people. Yet Yahweh fulfilled his covenant, freely affirming his choice out of love. He granted them freedom from slavery. He gave them adoption as sons and daughters. And he gave them another covenant to secure and vouchsafe that freedom. In Israel's election, we see our own election, the election of the church built on the foundation of Christ. St. Peter calls him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then he cites Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 in support. On that foundation, we as living stones are built to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, First Peter. Like the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and like Israel, we are also chosen without any merit or worthiness on our part. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes us prior to conversion as dead in trespasses and sins. David Chaitreus draws out what this means in the solid declaration of the formula where he writes, and I quote, just as people who are bodily dead not on the basis of their own powers prepare themselves or dispose themselves to receive temporal life once again, so people who are spiritually dead in sins cannot on the basis of their own strength dispose themselves to turn themselves toward appropriate spiritual heavenly righteousness and life, if the Son of God has not made them alive and freed them from the death of sin, close quote. God is faithful in his covenant, this new covenant in Christ's blood. You, you entered into that covenant in your baptism. There, the triune God placed his hands on you, and you became his daughter and his son. He declared, you are mine. You were confirmed in that covenant by the word, the preached word, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In the spoken word of absolution, you are forgiven. 
bloody word of the sacrament given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Through all these, as means of grace, the Holy Spirit works to secure our election. Even now, through these same means, he works to preserve in us that election. All this, that we might be free from the condemnation of the law, free from the guilt of our own sin, free in Christ and his church. Our election is certain in Christ, but election is the elephant in the room, isn't it? If Abram was chosen without merit, if Israel was chosen without merit, if you and if I were chosen without merit, why did God choose us and not others? If there is nothing good in us, then why are we the lucky ones, while others are damned to hell for all eternity? For surely some will perish. The Bible is frighteningly clear about the reality of hell. I would suggest that much of this grows out of our confusion of the two realms, the temporal and the spiritual, to use Luther's terms. In the temporal or the civil realm, we operate under an assumption of a neutral starting point. In criminal cases, the presumption of innocence has been firmly established in Western jurisprudence. It becomes quite easy, therefore, to carry the assumption of a neutral starting point into the spiritual realm. From this perspective, I can choose God, or I can reject God. It is my choice, not God's. The spiritual reality, however, is that this is only half right. Yes, I can reject God. The spiritual, or the biblical evidence in our own anecdotal experience reinforces this side of election. For we know many have simply said, no thank you to God. The opposite side of election, however, is quite different. Recall our deadness and trespass and sins from Ephesians 2 and its implications spelled out in the formula. In 1 Corinthians, Paul explains, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. To speak of understanding or lack thereof is quite helpful. One thing we do know, we do make choices every day. You chose to put on this clothes this morning. You chose what you ate for breakfast. You chose to worship this morning, either here in the pews or at home on the live stream. How then can you say, I did not choose God? But in all these choices, we always choose according to our nature, what we consider best or in our interest. But without the Holy Spirit enlightening, directing, and empowering us, we will always choose the things of this world. Paul goes so far as to say, we are enemies of God. In Romans 8, he writes, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But what about 1 Timothy 2? God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If God is omnipotent, if God is all-powerful, why does his election fail? Interestingly, the formula answers by pointing us to the Word. In Article 11 we read, 
the reason for condemnation lies in their not hearing God's word at all, or arrogantly despising it, plugging their ears and their hearts, and thus blocking the Holy Spirit's ordinary path so that he cannot carry out his work in them. Or if they have given it a hearing, they cast it to the wind and pay no attention to it. Then the fault lies not with God and his election, but with their own wickedness. Thanks be to God that you have heard and believed. You are redeemed. To be redeemed, as we have said, God must choose. Our epistle lesson affirms to each of us that he has Paul writes, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You are chosen. You are redeemed. Chosen to be, in the words of our Old Testament text this morning, God's treasured possession. The word here in Hebrew is segula. It is a relatively Old Testament, it's a relatively rare, it's a relatively rarely used Old Testament word, which occurs only eight times. Six of which, however, refer to God's segula. It first appears in Exodus chapter 19, where God declares through Moses that he bore Israel on eagles' wings, so that you shall be my segula. Here in Deuteronomy, 40 years later, God reaffirms, you are my segula, my treasured possession. This despite the rebellion, the grumbling, the golden calf that had transpired in between. The same is true for you. And for me, despite our sin and stumbling that characterizes our every day, we, you, are still God's segula. The last time this word appears in our Bible is in Malachi chapter 3. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. You are that son. You are that daughter. His elect. To understand election, look to the son God did not spare. Look to Jesus. Luther suggests if you cling to the Lord Christ, you are certainly one of the many whom God from the beginning has chosen to be his own. Otherwise, they would not come and would not listen to this revelation were accepted. We believe because we are elect. We are not elect because we believe. So look to the sun and believe. Look to the open tomb and hear the angel's proclamation. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Look to each other, to the church. You are his treasured possession. God chose you through his son, Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen.